In all seriousness, this, uh, the Psalms that we've been in in January have been challenging. Uh, these Psalms 3, 4, 5, and 6 are essentially lament Psalms, the, the, or they at least include lament. Uh, some of you might be familiar, I know several in our church are familiar with a book called Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy by Pastor Mark Vorup, who's a pastor in uh, Indianapolis. And he wrote um, this book on lament about uh, the, the challenges of life and how do we pray to the Lord in those seasons. And he defines lament this way. He says, lament is a prayer of pain that leads to trust. A prayer of pain that leads to trust. You know, sometimes as Christians who know the whole story of the Bible, we know that, you know, the gospel tells us, the gospel means good news. So the good news that Jesus Christ came, lived, died in the place of sinners, and that for all who turn from their sin and trust in him alone are given a forgiveness, new life. And he rose again on the third day, proving that he had the power to actually save us. That's good news. And we as evangelical Christians spend a lot of time talking about that good news. And it truly is wonderful news. And it changes us. It transforms us. And yet, sometimes, those of us who know that good news oftentimes don't know what to do when those dark clouds really come. When, as Dave said, the weather outside is really what's going on in my heart, too. And then sometimes, even worse, for those of us who know the Bible really well, who've been familiar with these things for a long time, think, you know what, I, I, I know enough, I know that story, and therefore I'm just supposed to reject all the struggles of my life. Doubts, fears, desperation, depression. Ignore those things, only focus on the good. But when we try that too much, we realize that just doesn't work either. Because we need to deal with the realities of our life. The gospel, that good news, has something to say to us. We're in the midst of our depression. And the Lord himself is not afraid of us being honest with our most sincere challenges and depressions of life. In fact, the Psalms themselves remind us that we can pray these honest prayers before the Lord. Did you know that some 65 psalms in the Bible out of 150, some 65 of them are lament psalms? They're given in the context of this despair. They're teaching and training us for how to pray and sing when we are at our lowest. But yet sometimes we feel this need to always be happy as Christians. Enjoy, yes. And eternal happiness, yes, but that doesn't need to wash away the sorrow and challenge that we're feeling in the moment. Carl Truman is a man I quote often in sermons and read quite a bit of, and he has a wonderful article called, What Can Miserable Christians Sing? I hope some of the songs that we've sang this morning. But sometimes our gatherings, too, don't always know what to do with Laments, But these psalms that we've been in in January give us that model and remind us how to pray. We've been on this roller coaster throughout uh, the psalms. There's these low and high points. And in psalms, I'll just remind you of a couple lines of some of the lowest things <coughs> excuse me, that have been prayed through these psalms. Psalm 3, O oh Lord, how many are my foes? 
Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Psalm 4, O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? Psalm 5, give us ear, give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my droning, give attention to the sound of my cry. And that roller coaster is, is, is on the descent quite a bit. <clears throat> and, and we actually have psalms of ascent as well. Those were psalms that were prayed or sung on their way to Jerusalem to worship. And we're kind of waiting to come back up after the, the, the despair that's been described so far. But, but this psalm, Psalm 6, continues to go down. Based on what we've read just from those three previous psalms, if you feel like, is it even possible to get lower? Psalm 6 reminds us that it is. See, we <clears throat> know that at least some of these psalms were written in the context of David's conflict with his son Absalom. Remember that his son Absalom had created a civil war, had rebelled against him, had usurped the kingdom, and this had created quite a chaos. And David is praying many of these prayers. His foes literally could be his own son that he's praying against here. We know that for Psalm 3, but 4, 5, and 6 seem to make a sense that they could come in that context as well. But so far in Psalms 3, 4, and 5, <clears throat> we've not seen anything related to David's confession of sin. They have simply have been prayers from the depths. But, but Psalm 6, though, begins to draw out something of a confession. Psalm 6 has historically been known as one of the penitential psalms. By penitential, we mean that uh, Christians have used this uh, uh, to, to confess sin. It draws out a type of confession of sin. Now, it's not clear that Psalm 6 is a direct result of David's sin. It could just be God's providence in his life to, to be working in him and in those difficult circumstances are revealing sins in him. And he's praying a prayer of confession in that sense. That's possible. One commentator actually mentions how Psalm 6 has been used historically in the preparation for Christians uh, for Easter to, as a prayer of confession to draw them out and prepare them for the resurrection of Christ. But despite David's circumstances and despite what's going on in his life, all of us, as we read Psalm 6, will feel moments of this as well. As we read the devastation that David prays out of, we'll have our own stories. David has a circumstance that he's praying this in, but so do you and I. The truths of this psalm are everlasting. And God's people can pray Psalm 6 to go to the Lord when we're feeling the depths. Our main idea this morning is that when our circumstances and sins push us to the depths, we cry out in trust. When our circumstances and sins push us to the depths, we cry out in trust. Go ahead and stand as I read from Psalm 6 and on a reading of God's word. <clears throat> and I hope that this will strengthen all of us. Psalm 6, to the choir master... With stringed instruments, according to the Shemineth, a psalm of David. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? I'm weary with my moaning. 
Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. For the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. This is God's word. You may be seated. So remember our main idea today, when our circumstances and sins push us to the depths, we cry out and trust. And David here models a type of prayer that asks honest questions, but then concludes with a sincere confession, with a confession of trust. Now, before I get into the heart of the message here, I want to talk to three different groups of people in our congregation. First, to those who are currently in the midst of serious sufferings. Some in our church right now are going through some of the worst moments of their own lives. And I hope today that that this encourages you, this strengthens you, that you would sense an honest prayer, that you would realize that you can pray a kind of prayer like this as well as you process all that's going on in your life with the Lord. Secondly, to those who have suffered, I pray that, that this sermon, that this text would help you to remember God's grace in your life. That when you think about your story of despair, your circumstances that were difficult, that you would look back on those and not recoil with PTSD, but would would praise God for his faithfulness to you in the midst of this. That you wouldn't compare sufferings to one another, but you would realize your own story is a story of grace. And then thirdly, to those of us who aren't suffering, You know, sometimes you get in a small group, you've been in a small group before where everybody's going around praying prayer requests and someone shares a really difficult prayer request and you feel like, well, I feel kind of bad talking about how good my life is right now because it's not quite fitting the moment. It's okay in the family of God for us to have good things going on in our lives and not all of us, by God's grace, are in moments of, of despair. Praise God for what's going on in your life. Don't go looking for suffering. It'll come at times. Just live long enough. but praise God for what's going on in your life. And still, I hope that for us as a church family, that we would look at these questions and we look at this confession and we would see it as an opportunity to strengthen one another. But these, these questions, two of them are explicit in the text. The third one is assumed are honest questions that all of us going through suffering will pray or ask at some point. There, there's sincere uh, honesty that we all have the freedom to ask to the Lord as we go through these things. And yet David still closes with trust. Remember, lament is a prayer of pain that leads to trust. And we see a model for that here. First question, in the midst of our suffering, how long will it last? How long will it last? David praises in verse 1, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled, but you, O Lord, how long? How long? Who who in in our midst has has prayed in the midst of that? Just how long is this going to last? David starts with a very heavy, uh, heavy, heavy lines here to begin his prayer. And we, part of the reason you can see quickly why this prayer would be considered a penitential uh, psalm, one that's used as a psalm of confession 
is when David uses phrases like this early, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Rebuke me and, and, and discipline me in your wrath, are, those are uh, relational terms that are often used as parents to a child. One commentator says, by making this negative petition, the psalmist acknowledges that his suffering was God's chastening of him. Thus, it is, imply, it is an implied confession of sin. What, <clears throat> what's noticed here, David going through his challenges, going through these circumstances, he realizes that the Lord is using this to, to discipline him, to shape him, to form him. So these words for rebuke and discipline, again, are used in that context of parenting. Now, when we use the word discipline, we almost always think about that in the negative sense. It is, it is a wrong assumption to assume that discipline is synonymous with punishment. See? So there's several different forms of discipline that the Bible talks about that could even be true of this. Remember, Psalm 6 may not be a direct result of of the Lord's uh, punishment. It may not be a direct, direct result of David's circumstance or sins that the Lord is using to punish him. It could be just what the Lord is using to shape him. We have formative and corrective categories for discipline. Formative discipline is kind of like preseason conditioning before a sport begins. Any athlete knows how miserable and how necessary conditioning is for the season. Any of you football players who remember two-a-days in the beginning of August, any basketball player who knows what a suicide up and down the floor is, knows what, how important that is for the sake of the season, how conditioning is necessary. Formative discipline is helpful for all of our lives. Some of you parents might just tell your kids every once in a while, do hard things. Not every hard thing that comes in your life is, is something to get rid of. It's, in fact, sometimes it's something to endure because the hard thing is meant to shape you. It's meant to form you into a certain kind of person. And we learn through these difficulties as well. And we see this all over the Bible about how the Lord uses our suffering. The Lord has a plan for our suffering. It's not meaningless suffering. It's for his glory and for our own good. Just this week in men's Bible training on Wednesday nights, we're in 2 Corinthians and we were in chapter 1 and I read these verses, verses 8 and 9. Paul writes, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. Paul's circumstances made it feel like he was under the death sentence, that he was on death row because of how terrible his suffering and circumstances were. But this is how he ends. He says, but that, that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. See, worldly suffering, if you're here and not a Christian, you need to really, an important worldview question we all have to answer is what's the point of suffering? What's the point of suffering? And if you're an atheist, someone who doesn't believe in that God exists or is behind all these things, an atheist really has to have no point of suffering. Survival of the fittest, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger, and, and the, the strong oppress and kill the weak. That's the point of suffering in that sense. It's to make you stronger. 
But see, in, in a Christian worldview, a believer is able to say, God has a point and purpose for my suffering. Yes, there are some elements here to make me stronger. It's to form me and shape me. It's to be the gold that goes through the fire. But even more than that, even better than that, is that my suffering will, re- will re- reveal my weaknesses so that I rely not on my strength, but on the strength of Christ. Paul can say, I boast all the more in my weaknesses so that I have life and boasting in Christ alone. So that we might rely on the Lord who raises the dead. Brothers and sisters, formative discipline in our lives. What the Lord is using to shape us reveals our sins and inadequacies, reveals our shortcomings so that we might trust in the Lord. While again, the psalm may not be a direct result of David's sin, it is still revealing his sin so that he might confess that and walk in a new way, in a transformed way with God. That's formative discipline. The other discipline is corrective discipline. And that sounds exactly, or that is exactly what it sounds like. Corrective discipline rebukes wrong or sinful behavior and leads to another path. Corrective discipline is meant, is, is meant to stop somebody who's going one way, to turn them in repentance so that they go another way. It's to correct, it's to move, it's to change the direction of their heart. Loving confrontation shows our wrongdoing. Now, sometimes corrective discipline gets a bad rap because, like I said, sometimes it can be viewed only as punitive. It can only be seen as a punishment. But corrective discipline, both church discipline or parental discipline, always has restoration as the goal. Restoration is always the goal for someone who is stopped in their sin, who is told to turn around, go another way, so that you might walk in newness of life. Gentle parenting might be all the rage in some capacities. And it's important to shape the heart, to have conversations, to make sure we're understanding what's going on. But brothers and sisters, we must also correct to call out all in love. Think of how good it is. Think of how good it is that the Lord would catch us in our sin. Think of that. Have you ever ever considered the fact that, that Being found out in your sin is a grace of God to you. When I've sat with people or when I considered my own sin and they feel overwhelmed by the state of their sin, they feel embarrassed by the destruction of their sin, by the heinousness of their own sin, and they are at their lowest. Oftentimes, one of the first things I say to them is only bringing what is in the dark to light is the way for you to move on. Corrective discipline is a grace and love of God so that we might turn and go another way. Hebrews 12 is a great text to go to when we think about God's discipline in our life and sometimes using difficult circumstances both to correct and to form us. Hebrews 12 verse 7 says this, It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children not, and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. 
I would gladly give back all of the difficult things that have taken place in my life. There's not a one moment of suffering that I would do over. But I wouldn't change or trade who I am because of that suffering. You feel that tension sometimes? Some of us who have suffered, any of you who have suffered greatly would say, I would gladly give it all back. And yet, the way the Lord has used that suffering in your life, you would not be the same person. You would not be formed to share in his holiness in the same capacity. Sure, it all seems unpleasant in the moment. And yet, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. David recognizes it and he confesses his own sin, but he recognizes how the Lord is still working through it. And still, though, he prays, how long? He's not afraid to say, enough's enough. I get it, Lord. All that discipline in our lives doesn't mean we're not praying that the Lord would stop it, that the Lord would cease it. And he, he says here, he says, be gracious to me. Treat me as I don't deserve. Have you noticed how frequently in these Psalms, how it's all in the context of grace? David regularly asked, Lord, be gracious to me. He's not coming out of his own, uh, what he deserves. He's not coming seeking, this is, I've been good enough, Lord. He always prays in grace. Brothers and sisters, every prayer of ours should always be uttered in the context of grace. We don't come to the Lord on our own goodwill, on our own merit. We come to the Lord asking that the Lord would treat us, not as we deserve, but in his grace. But he says, I'm languishing. He's asking for mercy. I'm languishing. My bones are troubled. My soul is greatly troubled. Have you ever received news that caused you to feel nauseous on the inside? You receive news that weaken your knees, caused you to buckle over. David feels this in his bones. We might open the door and feel the, the rush of wind or the rush of cold meet us, and we feel, I feel that in my bones. David feels this agony, his despair of his circumstances, and in his sin in his bones. He's languishing, and his soul is in trouble. So he prays, How long? But that first question gives way to another question. He asks how long, but he also says, who will give you praise? Who will give you praise? In verse 4, he says, turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? When we ask how long, the answer is only as long as the Lord has for us. But then we continue to go, who will give you praise? Who will sing for your salvation? David goes from describing his low estate to asking that the Lord would deliver him. And how much longer leads to essentially saying, who's going to praise you? Where's the opportunity to, to, for worship? He says, deliver my life so that I might give you praise. David's cry for salvation is rooted in a theological reality. It's the Lord's love that compels him to request a change. He says, save me for the sake of your steadfast love. See, if you're 
newer to Christianity, if you're not all that familiar with the Bible, maybe you've heard a phrase that goes, you know, that the Old Testament God and the New Testament God are, are very different. That the Old Testament God is a God of wrath and the New Testament God is a God of love. But re- read the Psalms. Re- read the whole Old Testament and you'll see God's love all over the Bible. God's love is not merely a New Testament idea. It is a whole Bible idea. In fact, it is who God is. God is love. This word means loyal love. The NIV says unfailing love. The CSB says faithful love. David is calling out on behalf of God's covenantal commitments. That is his promises that he's made to his people through covenant, through a commitment. It's through a vow. Making promises is significant and intentional. And when I officiate weddings, I remind couples about how essential, how important the marriage vows are. Now you might say, duh, that's what you're supposed to do as part of a wedding. But in fact, for any of us who have been married a little while, you realize sometimes you get married and you're, you spend a lot of time thinking about the celebration, you think a lot about this, uh, the, the reception, you think a lot about the guest, and sometimes you forget that those few moments, those few moments are what you're there for, to make promises to one another. And when we make promises to one one another in the context of a marriage vows, of weddings, we're making promises, we're not writing love letters. Tim Keller deals with this in his book, The Meaning of Marriage, a book I'd recommend to any married couple, especially pre-married couples. But he says that personal marriage vows oftentimes sound more like a Hallmark card than promises. Now, Sarah and I, in all transparency, wrote our own vows and we made sure to write promises to one another, not just a love letter. But the point that what we're trying to make here in, a, in vows, in a, in a promise to love, is that when you get married, you're marking a date. You're marking a date 50 years into the future, Lord willing, that you will be with them, that you will stay committed to them. You will stay married to that person for that entirety. You, you have plans. God's love is a commitment to himself. It's a commitment to his people. One of my favorite few verses in the Old Testament is Deuteronomy 7, verses 7 through 9. God says this, It was not because you were of more number than any other people that the Lord has set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant, steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. And David says, Lord, I'm calling on behalf of your steadfast love that you would save me. See, when we pray, prayers of lament, when we say, who can praise you and how long We're always doing that in the context of God's faithfulness and his commitment to us who are in Christ. David says, in death there's no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? Now, as we talked about this text this week, and you might even be thinking about it now, you might realize, it's like, well, wait, wait a second. Doesn't the Bible say to be absent with the body is to be present with the Lord? Doesn't Psalm 119 or 116 pardon, say that precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints? Isn't death supposed to be some kind of victory for the Christian? Well, yes, we know those truths. And yet Psalm 6 reminds us that it is not wrong for the believer to want to live. That there is an opportunity that we have to declare to the non-Christian, to declare to the world around us who will give you praise in death. 
We, 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 give the, we, give, we get to give praise to the Lord as we testify of his salvation, of his work in our lives. Save me, O Lord, so that I can praise you. When David uses the word sheol here, sheol is an Old Testament way of talking about uh, the afterlife or death. Who will praise you from there, he says. Save me so that I can praise Now, these are two extremely meaningful questions in the midst of a lament. Some of you in the moment are asking, again, how long? And yes, if God would uh, change my circumstances, then I could praise him. You're praying and asking those same kind of questions as well. And we think now is the time where that roller coaster is starting to go back up. But verses 6 and 7 of Psalm 6 are devastating verses. They're devastating We ask how much longer and who will praise. But then the assumed question of six and seven is, how much more can I take? How much more can I take? David prays in verse six, I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. We should just stop for a few moments and really let those verses sink in. Weary with moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. David is crying so much that his mattress is saturated with tears. Think of all the rain we've had recently. Now just imagine that those are coming from your, those are your tears. The rising flood is not just of water and rain, it's of weeping because you can't control yourself anymore. He says, I drench my couch with my weeping. Some of those times when you feel at your lowest, you're just on the couch, you can't get up. His tears are just simply going into his pillow. He says, my eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. We get the sense that David is consistently, constantly wiping his eyes, wiping the tears away from him, and he's wiping them so much that his eyes are eventually going to dissipate. They're going to fall apart. When was the last time you were in a situation of uncontrollable tears? I officiated a funeral this fall for a family friend. And I wasn't sure I was going to be able to get myself together to lead the funeral. I had to find a private room to finally get it all out before I could get myself together. Have you ever held a friend on your shoulder as they just simply weep and weep and weep? By the time they move their head off your shoulder, your shoulder's wet from their tears. There are times in life when we can't speak, we can't get a hold of ourselves, and we just cry. One of the beauties of these psalms is that it gives us us a model for when we don't have words, we can simply cry before the Lord. And David feels the emotion of his circumstances in a number of ways, or the emotions that are coming out in him. In first, uh, in two ways, he feels it first in his, his circumstances are driving his emotions. His circumstances receive his tears. He says in verse seven how he's weak because of his foes. What circumstances in your life 
cause you to bawl? What circumstances have you been through that you couldn't get through a day without tearing up? As part of our pastoral and elder meetings, we are praying systematically through our membership list. And one of the challenges of going through that is when we see those names, we know those stories. Randy Kettering, former worship leader here, many of you would know him. He always used to say, behind every set of eyes, there's a story. And when we pray, we realize that some of you, some of us are going through some of the most difficult things that are of our lives. Our circumstances sometimes drive our tears. We know your pain and heartache and the agony that you live in. We can only imagine the tears you cry as you try yourself to sleep. And when you awake, your pillow's wet. But take those tears to the Lord. David may also, though, feel these tears or cry these or have these emotions because of conviction of his sin. Conviction of his sin. See, God's correction of your sin might be overwhelming. And some of you, some of us, will feel when we're caught in our sin, sometimes we feel the overwhelming despair of being found out. We feel the, the weakness of that. We feel the challenge of those things. And our, our, the conviction of our sin drives us down. We cannot but weep because of the embarrassment. Are you overwhelmed with the weight of your failings? Does the conviction of your sin reveal itself in your emotion? That I have sinned against the Lord and Him only? See, if you feel the weight of those emotions, if that's reason, the reason you're crying your tears at night too, bring those to the Lord. Repent, confess, trust in Christ. The hope of Psalm 30 verse 5 is this, For His anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. But we feel David's lament and our lament. The questions of how much longer, who will give you praise, and how much more can I take are real questions that many of us feel. They're understandable. It's an understandable way for us to process all that's going on in our lives as well. But while David prays these prayers, he asks these questions he doesn't just ask the question. He confesses his trust in the Lord. It's almost as if we could, that David is saying in our fourth point today, it's almost as if he's saying, I know how this ends. Despite all of his questions that he's asked, he still knows how this ends. Depart from me, all you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. Think of how gracious it is that the Lord hears David's weeping. He hears his plea. He accepts his prayer. Some of us as experienced parents, if you have a kid who doesn't do so well on a long trip and they're in the back of the car, at some point you just have to tune out those cries so that you can get to your destination. There's no way of pacifying what's going on in the back seat. So, I, so put the, ear cancel, or the, the noise canceling uh, headphones on and just get to where you have to go and they'll do, you'll deal with what's going on back there eventually. But friends, while that might be necessary in earthly parenting, the Lord does not have sound canceling Headphones. The Lord hears your cry. He's not ignoring, he's not ignoring you. He's not, he's not distracted. He hears our plea. He answers our prayer. 
Now, that does not always mean that he'll answer it in the way that we would desire, but we can always know that the Lord answers our prayer, that he will do all things of what, that are right and just and good for his own glory. And we can know that those workers of evil will not get the last laugh. David can pray. He can say, depart from me, O men, because the Lord is coming. In Psalm 4, David prayed, O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? But here he can confidently confess, my enemy shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. See, knowing the end of the story, knowing how this ends should encourage all of us. Go read Revelation 20, 21, and 22 this afternoon, and you'll see what happens to Satan and his demons. That they're cast into the eternal lake of fire. We'll see what happens to all those outside of Christ who will go with this Satan and his demons there too. That God will always right all wrongs. That he is completely just. That can give us hope in the morning. And yet for the believer, there is joy with the Lord always. For the one who has trusted Christ, we will forever be with the Lord. Think of how Jesus lived this psalm. Jesus felt the agony of sin, but not his sin, our sin. Jesus felt the weight, the overwhelming circumstances while he prayed, while he cried tears of blood in that garden. Jesus identified with every tear that we've ever cried, with every pain we've ever endured, with every suffering we've ever uh, had to go through. Jesus knows. And because Jesus was forsaken, we can be brought near. Because Jesus cried drops of blood, he can wipe away our tears in eternity. So he says in Revelation 21, Behold, that he will always, I will be their God and they will be my people. I will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death and pain shall be no more. But I, they will forever be with the Lord. The glories of the gospel, brothers and sisters, is that Christ enters into our pain, enters into our lament. So when we go to the one, we don't go to one, to somebody who's unfamiliar with our suffering, but one who is acquainted with suffering, who knows grief, who has bore our sorrows in his body on the tree, so we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And all of our questions of lament, we cry out to the one in trust. As we conclude, though, this series, I want to offer just four practical suggestions, reminders, pastoral application for our church. In the midst of our pain, how do we apply these things quickly? Number one, be honest with the Lord. Be honest with the Lord. The Lord is not afraid of our honesty, our hurt, our frustrations. Now, I would agree with John Piper, who says, it is not okay to be angry with God but we can process our anger. We can process our frustrations with him. Take a long walk and pray. Secondly, remember the broader picture. Remember the broader picture. We know the beginning and the end. We know how the Lord has created all things, how the fall destroyed our relationship with God in, in this world. And yet Christ came to triumph, to, to promise, uh, to, to give us new life in the gospel. And the restoration of all things is at hand. God will make all things new. And we hope and look forward to that day and in the new, new heavens and new earth where there is no suffering and pain. Thirdly, process your pain with church community. Process your pain with church community. We need one another. 
As members of a local church, we commit to bear one another's burdens, to to mourn with those who mourn, to to strengthen one another. Sometimes we need godly professional counselors to to point us to the scriptures, to help apply them to our lives. But oftentimes we simply need the church community, the saints here to remind us of truth, not offer platitudes. We can remind of truth without without offering platitudes, without trying to, to, to wipe away somebody's suffering, but to enter into it and remind people of the goodness of the gospel, of God's plan for us. Danny Nathan said this week in our summer prep meeting, he says how important it is to build community before we need community. He's exactly right. All the more reason to become a member here at Grace, to jump into a small group, so that you were known by people, to sit next to people here because these are the people who are going to carry us in the midst of suffering. These are the people who are going to keep our arms up. These are the people who are going to be the crutches we rely on when we can't take another step. We need our church. And finally, sing. Sing. Remember the book of Psalms is a Hebrew and early church hymn book. These psalms may have been individual prayers, but they were sung as a congregation. Do you realize how meaningful it is to sing with God's people? That we would sing out of the overflow of who we are in Christ and to remind ourselves of these wonderful truths of to sing to and with one another, to in the context of our singing, of our worship, that we would would get a glimpse of, of somebody out of the corner of our eye. That we wouldn't just look at the words, but we would look at our congregation every once in a while. Because we know the stories that are in this room. We know of what's going on with our brothers and sisters. And when we sing to one another, we're singing hope, we're singing peace, we're singing joy, we're singing confidence of how this all ends, that we can draw hope in Christ on that last day. And we will know that there will be a day where worship services continue. And we will get to praise the Lord forever. And our song will never end because we are with the Lord who has taken care of all of our suffering. Friends, when our circumstances and sins push us to the depths, cry out and trust. This is the hope of the gospel. This is what Jesus has lived and died for. And when he comes again to make all things new, he'll wipe away our tears. All things will be made whole and we will forever be with the Lord. Let's pray. God, I pray now that you would comfort and strengthen us in the midst of our affliction. For those in our congregation, Lord, who feel the weight of this text, who cry themselves to sleep and wake themselves up with tears in the morning, God, I pray that you would strengthen them by your grace and through your spirit. Lord, we ask, Lord, that we as a church community would help one another in suffering. That we would not offer meaningless lines of self-help, but that we would point one another to the glories of Christ who has suffered for us. Thank you, Lord, that you give us hope beyond the grave. Thanks that there there will be a time where all of our uh, discipline, formative or corrective, will cease and we will be with you. Lord, while we cry from you or to you from the depths, we pray, Lord, that you would overwhelm us with hope and joy in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.